we don't see enough women in senior roles, but that creates a perception that women can't get senior roles. It's absolutely not true. But there is a point at which you have to have kind of a critical mass that make people believe that it's possible. So shouting about it, being encouraging, women helping women, men helping women, mentoring, all those things have a massive place. Being open that juggling a career with kids is really hard. You're not supposed to find it easy. It's really, really hard. And if you're finding it hard, that's not a failing of you. That's because it's really hard. Welcome to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs. I wanted to start today by paying tribute to Jamal Edwards, who passed away over the weekend at the age of 31. Jamal founded SBTV with a camcorder in 2006 and went on to become one of the pioneers in the new wave of British entrepreneurialism that we are seeing now. He was, in effect, the first YouTube creator, inspiring the careers of Jesse J and Ed Sheeran. The first time I saw Jamal speak was in 2014 in Sheffield. He was spellbinding with his vision for the way that everyone could become a creator and that everyone had access to these new platforms where they could put themselves out there and no longer necessarily have to have a foot in the door with big corporations such as MTV. It was incredibly inspiring and I'm incredibly sad at his passing but I'm so glad to have known him and known the trail that he blazed for a whole future of generations of creators. Today's episode is with Ruth Hancock, the CEO of Octopus Investments. The Octopus Group are the partners for this series of Jimmy's Jobs and at the beginning of the series we always sit down and work out which people from Octopus we're going to profile. There's so many impressive people from the 750 people that they employ, it can be difficult to know where to start. But Ruth really has had a fascinating career. And money is so important and so intrinsic to all of our lives. And yet there is a British tendency sometimes not to talk about it, not to talk about what we should do with it and being shy about how we can make it grow and how we can make it do more for us. So this was a fascinating conversation with Ruth about all of that. And it's not just high-level kind of strategic investments either, which sometimes the name can give you the impression of. She's also chair of Octopus Money Coach, which helps people to coach and use their money better on a regular basis. But we started at the point where she began her career in the booze industry and that was a a rather fun place to start the conversation. But before diving in, I wanted to thank our headline partners, the Octopus Group. Octopus manages more than 11 billion on behalf of its institutional and retail investors and is on a mission to invest in the ideas, industries and people that will change the world. More than 70% of its funds tackle climate change, improve people's quality of life and address inequality. As a leading manager of alternative investments in the UK, they have specialist expertise in renewable energy, venture capital, real estate and digital infrastructure. They are also a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason we are able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders 
Chris Hewlett, Simon Rogerson, or one of their venture partners on the future of health tech, Pooja Seeker. On to today's show. Ruth, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs. Thanks for having me. You're the CEO of Octopus Investments, but I wanted to start a little earlier in your career when you were the Global Finance Director of Bacardi, specifically Martini, Whiskey and Cognac. What was that like as an experience? Oh, you know what? Working for a big brand like that is pretty amazing. I mean, a lot of people draw that out of the CV and say, what was it like working for a big brand like that? It's no joke that when you start, you are taught how to make cocktails. Um, it's really encouraged that you go and live the brand. It's really encouraged that you spend your weekend sampling um, drinks, your own drinks, other people's drinks. So everyone's like, that is my dream career. And it's a wonderful place. It's, um, it's a place where you learn how to tell stories with brands and how you really get into consumers' heads. So I think spending a bit of time in, in a heavily branded company, whether that's FMCG, whether that's something else, if you're at any point in the future in your career, want to really understand a customer, it's a great place to get that get that insight because it's it's what sells brands. It must be quite cool to work somewhere where everyone knows the product as well, pretty much. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the interesting thing, actually, that a lot of people don't know about Bacardi is how many other brands it owns. So you get to work on brands like Grey Goose and Bombay Sapphire and these household names that, that people have in, have in their drinks cabinet. You also get to buy it at cost. So um, I think I'm still living off the proceeds of my time at Bacardi whenever I have cocktail parties. It's great. <laughs> Absolutely. And you've held a, a wide variety of jobs. I counted on your CV um, close to 14, I think, and a variety of them as well, including checkout, operative, car washer, salad chopper as well on, on a night shift. What did those jobs earlier on in your career teach you about running an investment firm? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. If only I could weave a story out of that. I mean, what jobs like that teach you, I think, is resilience, determination. I mean, I always had jobs from when I was about 14. The night shift at a salad factory was probably the low light, standing chopping icebergs at 3 a.m. Um, but it makes you go back to uni and work twice as hard because it's really, really tough. Um, and you're really working for your five pounds an hour. And that taught me an awful lot. So I, um, yeah, I think it teaches you, teaches you determination, which is important in any job you do. Is that something you look for when hiring people now, sort of people who've, who've done jobs like that? You know, you can have internships at JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, but there are things there that you learn as a salad chopper. Perhaps you don't at Goldman. No, it's totally true. I mean, it's, if one of the things you're testing for is resilience, which is one of the things I test for, um, I think it's a really brilliant indication of that. I was saying to someone the other day that I think at times the CEO job feels like a marathon is the ultimate test of energy, that you have to be on top of everything. You have to be the person probably in the room with the most energy because actually really people really take their lead from you. And, you know, I'm probably biased, but I think if you can get through 10 hours a night chopping salad and come out the other end then um, then that shows an awful lot about how determined you are and how likely you are to show up with that energy when you need to. So, yeah, I definitely use it as an indication. And how do you test for resilience in, in a job interview? Because it's quite a difficult thing to get across in a 40-minute or even hour-long session. It's incredibly hard. So I look a lot at what people have done, how they how they tell their own story about why they made the career decisions they did, what triggers people's changes in career, how much they're striving, what happens when things go wrong. I mean, I would be the first to admit that there are 
points in my career where things have gone horribly wrong, you know, because it was my own fault or someone else's fault. If people are able to tell those stories really openly, it not only shows you that they're resilient, but that when things go wrong, they recognise that it's gone wrong. They learn that it's gone wrong and they probably are more likely to do something differently next time. I'm actually most suspicious when people come and describe a career where nothing's gone wrong whatsoever, um, because it means they probably don't have the humility I'm looking for, and they might not have the resilience either, because they haven't had to take those knocks and get back up again. What example do you give them as something that's gone horribly wrong at some stage? Oh, I think the, the toughest time for me was before I joined Octopus, I started a retail challenge bank called Tandem. We were, it was in the very early days of new banks. So sort of almost before everyone was talking lots and lots about fintech. And it was a really kind of audacious thing to go and get a banking license. Only Metro had got a new banking license before us in about the last hundred years. So it was a big deal. And we got our banking license. We executed some things brilliantly. We executed some things less well. And the toughest thing about starting a bank is you have to raise a huge amount of capital before your banking license becomes so-called unrestricted. And we had investors lined up and it fell away at the last minute. And we, ha- we spent a weekend thinking, well, what on earth do we do? And had to walk into the office on Monday morning and tell about a third of the team that they didn't have jobs anymore. And these were people who you've, who you've interviewed personally, who you've persuaded to leave other jobs and said, you know, come and do this risky, exciting thing. And suddenly you're telling them that this risky, exciting thing hasn't worked for them really, really tough. Tough for um, the team personally, tough for the business. Probably the biggest thing I learned from it is actually if you are open with people, if you tell them the full story, if you do everything you possibly can to help them with their career after they've left, actually most people come out of it saying that was horrible, but I felt as if I was treated fairly. And actually that's what you're shooting for at that point. You're never going to be able to make it right. Um, and it's very emotionally draining. But um, but if people can leave saying, I think I was treated fairly, that's that's good result from my perspective. Yeah. And so what attracted you to, after after that part of your career, to join Octopus? Oh, so I was attracted actually by a couple of things. By the fact that it's still founder-led and run. I've always had this big attraction to startups and growth companies because I think you get to make... You get to make decisions in a different way at an early stage of a company or in a founder-led company. So at Octopus, we're genuinely able, unlike anywhere else I've ever been, to make decisions for the long term because we have no desire to sell or list the business. So you can think, what's my advantage over the next 10 years, 20 years? Same at Bacardi, still a family-owned company. Um, so you can make decisions for the really long term. And, and if done correctly, it can give you a massive market advantage. The second was the people. So is when you join anywhere, you meet, you meet loads and loads of people. And you say, what's it like? What's it like? And it wasn't only that everyone I met um, said, oh, it's great. Come and work here. They told exactly the same consistent story, which was a story of, of humility um, amongst the management team, of collaboration, and of everyone trying to build a group of companies that left the world in a better place than how they found it. And when you hear that consistently from every single person you meet, you, you start to get quite curious. It's fairly unusual to find, mm. um, to find that, to find humility and a lack of politics being one of the defining features of management teams, I think is particularly rare. And I knew, um, I knew Simon, the founder as well, and I knew that that was what he was like. So, so that was probably the main persuasion for me. As I've gone through my career, I've definitely found I pick people as much as I pick companies. 
Um, because when you reflect on, did I enjoy that day at work? It's often about the people you've spent time with, the people you're building with, whether you trust them um, as it is anything else. Yes. And explain to us what the, the well, let's go with, yeah, we, we put in the strap line, Octopus is eight entrepreneurially minded companies. And it's funny when I'm explaining it to friends and people that listen to the show, they sort of automatically think of Octopus and they think of the energy firm now, which I sort of have to explain has been spun out of the company. But explain to us, you're the chief exec of the Octopus Investments bit. So explain to us what that part of the group does in particular. Yeah, so the investments business helps uh, retail investors, people like you and me, invest into predominantly private assets. So when I say a private asset, I might mean an early stage startup, or I might mean a big solar farm that's not um, that's not a public company. But it's investment opportunities that most people find it quite hard to access. You know, anyone can go onto an investment platform and choose a listed company or a fund. It's much harder to navigate the world of private assets, but it's where I think you can do a couple of things. You can get better returns. Um, but you can also get far more excited about what you're investing into. So when you hear some of the stories of the um, startups that we invest to in a venture stage, they're doing phenomenal things. And you as an investor can sit there and say, wow, I'm investing in a business that changes the world. I can tell the story. I know the brand. People find that really exciting. And you're starting to build that link between investment and actually what your investment is delivering in the world. A lot of people will have a pension and they'll think, oh, I have a pension, it's about my retirement. Few people then go, my pension's about my retirement, but it's also about the impact I can have in the world. It's also about um, over-investing in renewable energy because I care about climate change, or it's about investing in companies that care about the community they operate in. We all have this power with the money that we have, whether it's in a pension, an ISA, or anything else, but not many people yet engage with it and think, this makes me really powerful. Mm. This allows me to have an impact way beyond what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis in some cases. And how much do people need to kind of get involved with? Because sometimes I think there can be a perception of financial companies, you know, big institutions like Octopus. And, you know, people can think, oh, I need so many zeros coming in to kind of invest in that. What are the kind of levels that people can start at? Oh, I think there are all sorts of opportunities for people to start at a pretty low amounts. And, you know, it might be that you find a single company on a crowdfunding website that you think, I think that looks really cool. And you invest 50 to 100 pounds. It might be that you come to a company like Octopus and you say, oh, actually investing in a basket of smaller companies looks really interesting. I think putting a thousand pounds in that rather than into something else feels like something I want to do. Actually, if you were um, if you were thinking about it as an investor, it's all about how do you across the money that you're saving and investing get the right balance of risk for you. So some people have quite a high risk appetite and they might want to say, I want to invest in these things because I think they're interesting and I'm willing to take the risk for a potentially high return or an interest or an impact I want to have in the world. And for other people, that that's not the right answer. But I think it's that risk and attitude that dictates it rather than how many pounds you have to invest. Um, how many pounds you have in, to invest, there are opportunities from, from any level. 
on the investment side, the you know, Octopus Ventures is probably sort of towards a more riskier side of things. You know, we had Whirly on earlier in the series, you know, a toy kind of uh, company. So, you know, quite, quite a risk on that. The, the investment side that you run is a, is a bit more kind of established mainstream, isn't it? That's one of the key differences. Yeah, it's all of them. So it's everything from venture stage right up to what we'd call assets. So a solar farm. A solar farm should be delivering renewable energy for an extended period of time and should be a lot more predictable. You know, fibre, laying new fibre so people can get access to high-speed internet, huge strategic priority for the country. Laying cables in the ground has very different investment characteristics from, from a very early-stage startup. So, so right across the range. And because we work predominantly with financial advisors, they're able to talk through with their customers, what do we think is right for you? Um, the, you know, a lot of people find money investments really scary. And that's not because people don't have the skills. It's because it's, it's complicated. It's something a lot of people mm. don't do on a day-to-day basis. It's why on earth should you understand investments? It's not something that we, um, that we grow up inherently understanding. So actually the key for most people is figuring out who you can talk to that explain it, that help you figure out what's right for you, that help you figure out how you achieve your life goals and the way you invest. Um, and we work with financial advisors to make sure that that's what people are doing. And we'll come on to Octopus Money Coach in, in a short while, but what's your role as chief executive? Oh, great question. Great question. You know, I found the, the bigger teams I've managed, the more I see my role as setting the direction of the company. So people should look to me for the mission. They should look to me for the strategy, for the goals that we're delivering over the next year. And then a lot of the time I should get out of their way because uh, being a CEO to me is motivating people, is picking the right people, making sure those people can work brilliantly together, making sure that you're inspiring them with the right level of ambition helping them, coaching them, but fundamentally letting people get on with their jobs. And it's not until actually you're sitting in the seat that that really, or certainly for me, is not until you're sitting in the seat that that really sinks in. You know, people can look at a CEO and think, oh, you're the one who knows all the answers. You know, if you're the CEO that knows all the answers, you're probably slowing the company down because there are hundreds of people in your organisation who are way more likely to know the answer than you. But you need to make sure those people are achieving to their best potential and that the organization is therefore achieving the best it can you talk a lot there about kind of its motivation team building knitting that together how has that changed over the course of the pandemic oh it's really interesting it's um i've seen the pandemic as quite an interesting opportunity to do it better weirdly so you know i'm a big believer that we need to restock our relationships by spending time with each other Um, and I think that's almost the phase we're coming into now interestingly at the beginning of the pandemic I'm a big believer that great leaders are approachable humans you know I want anyone in the company to feel they can wander up to me and say I've had this idea or I've noticed this I think we should do it differently and what the pandemic allowed us to do particularly at the beginning was engage with people in a almost slightly closer way because if you imagine you're doing an all company to 300 people um normally you might be sitting in an auditorium you can see small faces sort of looking at you or nodding off depending on how good you what you're talking about is um on zoom you can see every individual 
And you can engage with them and you can have a conversation with them. You can bring them into the conversation. People can interact. So I've actually found that whole company environment really interesting um, that we've been pushed to do it on Zoom because I think I've been able to come across as a more human leader at times. You know, occasionally my kids are wandering. There was one notorious old company at the beginning of the pandemic where my little girl, who I think was probably two at the time, came in, immediately tripped over something and started screaming. And so I was desperately trying to deliver this message between screams. You literally get a sentence while she's drawing breath, scream, pause, okay, next sentence. Um, And suddenly afterwards, you get messages from people going, oh, well done for getting through that. And them having a tough day suddenly seems a bit easier because they know you're having a tough day too. So that humanity, I think, has been um, a real opportunity over the course of the pandemic, one I didn't anticipate at all. There can be an impression, sort of a chief exec of a financial services firm being quite sort of alpha male and so on. Touching on that family point, you've been quite clear about sort of setting boundaries and you have this kind of um, fascinating readme profile on the Octopus website, which kind of outlays to anyone um, kind of how you like to work and what your strengths and weaknesses are. Um, that struck me as just very surprising for a kind of chief exec of a finance firm to have to be quite so open. Yeah, and I think... For me, it comes back to how potentially almost how much you care about being the star of the show. I don't really care about being the star of the show at all. I care about the show being really good. And I believe that people are more likely to achieve their potential if they feel as if they can work collaboratively and frankly be open about what they're good at and bad at. And if you'd met me 20 years ago, I genuinely thought the rule of the game showing up at work was proving that nothing went wrong and I'd do everything I could to look like you know a swan swimming on top of the water paddling frantically underneath and I thought that's how you were supposed to show up and I think it's how most people imagine financial services organizations now. I think as I've got older I've realized that the more open you are the more open everyone else around you is and the more likely actually you are to flush out ideas and um, and problems frankly than if everyone gets up in the morning feeling as if they have to pretend they're perfect. None of us are perfect. Um, but what, what I've been persuaded of is you can say that as much as you want. You can say, oh, be honest, be honest, be honest. The only way to get people to be honest is to do it yourself. Um, and the more stories you tell about yourself, the more open you are that, you know, some days it's just utter chaos. Some days you think, oh, how do I know what I'm going to do next? The more you're likely to encourage that behaviour in others. And I think it just creates a better organisation. What failures have there been over the pandemic then in that regard that you've made? Oh, I think most of the ones that keep me up at night are about people and communication. So I, again, it's how you think of yourself. I want people to trust me and I want them to feel confident I'm helping them rather than trying to throw them under a bus. That's quite important to me personally. So normally the ones where I look back and I'm like, what on earth was I doing is where I've not communicated to someone properly or clearly and they've then gone off and and believed something that was incorrect or a message has got to someone uh, round the houses rather than me talking to them or I've just been in a difficult conversation with someone and I've slightly screwed it up we all do it or you send an email and you press send before you're ready those are the ones that 
you know, I'm sure everyone has this moment where it strikes fear into their heart. Those are the ones that bother me because it's wrapped up in how I want to be as a person. The ones where I've picked the wrong number or written down a budget that's wrong, you can reflect on them as mistakes and you might make a different logical decision. It rarely, I rarely go to bed thinking about it mm. um, because I think, you know, I'm quite a pragmatist. You'll get it right next time. Um, it's the people ones that bug me. What more can we do to inspire um, females in the top of financial services? Because there is you know, a glass ceiling. We can look at all the various statistics and uh, so forth. And it's something that I have become far more aware of since becoming a parent myself. Is like you know, when um, women take time off work and so on. It just it just is a sort of natural barrier, which is very difficult to overcome in those in those top level jobs and um i would love to hear your kind of reflections on on that first because it sounds like your ethos and mentality has changed enormously over the kind of 20 years that you've been working but how can we how can we improve it further still yeah it has changed enormously and i think i agree the biggest divergence point i've observed over the course of my career is when people take time off to have children so you know, I've got two small kids. I took time off. My husband took some time off. Um, it's not exclusively true. And whenever you talk about um, talk about topics like equality, you always I'm always very keen to say, you know, you can only ever really talk about it from your own experience. You can listen to the experience of others. And I think as a leader of an organisation, your job is to listen to everything and try and make the right judgment. But But certainly my observation is... There's a divergent point when people take time off to have kids because taking time off to have kids is a really interesting point in your life. It's probably the first time for me in 20 years where I hadn't been working incredibly hard. You have this moment to reflect. You have this thing in your life that is more important than work and you have a set of influences around you of often other people who have taken time off work that are voices you, you haven't heard over the past 20 years of your career. And so inevitably, people take a step back and they say, I'm going to evaluate what happens next a little bit differently from if I'd just carried on. And some people decide not to go back to work. Some people decide to go back part time. Some people decide they want to work every bit as hard as they did before. Other people don't. You have the inevitable childcare juggle, which is not easy for anyone. Um, but that reflection point, I think, is quite, quite critical because it's where I observe lots of women taking different decisions. Interestingly, I observe far fewer men taking different decisions. And I am always curious that if more men took time off when their children were young, whether we'd see parents taking different decisions. There's no right answer. I, um, I remember when I went back to work after my first son, I read an article that said, if you're a woman and you go back to work after having kids, people think you're a worse mother for not staying at home. But if you stay at home, people think you're a worse person for not trying and not being a role model and inspiring your children. So I just decided at that point there was no right answer and, and have held, held on to that really firmly. But I think if parents took more time off, then both parents would decide, decide what's right. It would be a joint decision. And you might just see that rather than there be a divergence where fewer women are going for the promotion, Fewer parents might be going for the promotion, but I don't think you'd get that gender split as you do at the moment. So at Octopus, we pay the same parental leave, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, 
we've done that for a few years. And interestingly, I, you know, I bleat on about it all the time. I always say to the men in the organisation, please take time off when you have children. It's a wonderful thing to do. And I think giving people the permission to do it, um, people then reflect, say, it was the best thing I've ever done. I do think differently about my mm. career. And that's wonderful. So parenthood is a big thing. Um, the second thing I'd say is, and I know people talk about this a lot, but role models, we don't see enough women in senior roles, but that creates a perception that women can't get to senior roles. It's absolutely not true, but there is a point at which you have to have kind of a critical mass that make people believe that it's possible. So shouting about it, being encouraging, women helping women, men helping women, mentoring, all those things have a massive place. Being open that juggling a career with kids is really hard. You're not supposed to find it easy. Yeah. It's really, really hard. And if you're finding it hard, that's not a failing of you. That's because it's really hard. I think the more we talk openly and people feel that they can bring their whole self to work and say, I'm struggling at the moment. I still want to commit to my job, but I'm struggling. Can you help? Then I just think we'll see more, um, more women, more parents um, coming through. And how, you know, it's important on the like you say, on the male, on the father's side to, to do that as well. And, and so much of it, as you say, gets kind of framed in the kind of like female mother side of things. What more can be done in that? Because it's like you say, it's, it's one thing to say, take as, as much time as you want, etc. But it's, it's just still that cultural, um, where we are culturally, that, that that doesn't happen. So so what more can kind of men do on that side? And is there anything that the government could do in terms of forcing it a bit as well? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I'm a big believer that parental leave should be the same for men and women. I think at least financially then households aren't having to weigh up, well, um, you know, it's this if I take time off and it's that if you take time off. It just creates that that gender divide before you even start. I think there is a, um, you know, there is a big influence in giving permission and encouraging people in your organization who have taken time off to talk about it, to talk about how it changed them, to talk about how it impacted their career. I'd really encourage that. I think the more you can just, you can talk about parents rather than talk about mothers, it's really noticeable. You know, I don't know, um, I don't know how much you see it with your children, but all of, you know, things like messages from school will come to the mother. People will talk about play dates birthday parties all goes to the mother it's a really strange thing that we've just got completely used to when I came back to work after my second I I'd been between jobs I took seven months off which felt like the right amount of time for me first thing someone said to me on my first day was should you be back at work yet it was such an odd it was such an odd thing to say and they meant it very kindly like wow it's really it's really nice that you're back but it's those subtle indicators of you've made an interesting choice, you as a mother should be doing something different, that feel very strange to me. And I think the more we can talk about parents, the more we can talk about, um, we can ask those questions of fathers as well, the more people or women in particular won't go home and second guess themselves mm. um, and wonder if they have made the right decision for their family. There was a moment I had the other day at the uh, nursery gates, which made me think uh, before Christmas, the nursery picking my daughter up I drop her off every day and, and sometimes I, I pick her up as well and um they said oh uh can you can you make sure that mum brings some more nappies next week please um 
And I was just sort of like halfway down back the road afterwards. And I was like, have I not got the capability to remember to pack nappies that they have to ask the mum? The irony is on the Monday morning, I had got halfway to nursery and I hadn't packed the nappies. But there was just something, uh, a small thing like that in it. And I don't understand where it it comes from and and so forth. Um, But yeah, it's... uh, I, th- I think it is a it is a challenge on people, and it's sort of it does. I mean, all the cliches about parenthood, about changing your, uh, you know, changes your worldview, are all true, and and so on. There's there's no doubt about that. But you've been very you've talked in the past about how you have clear boundaries of sort of being home and sort of leaving the phone at the door, which I thought was quite an interesting uh, side of things. Would how easy have you found it to be able to do that? I've found it easy because I've been really clear with myself what I think the right balance is. Um, So, you know, for me, I try not to, I try and finish meetings at five. And if I need to, I'll start working again at seven, seven thirty when the kids are in bed. That works for me. Um, But I enforce it quite rigidly and I feel completely unashamed about it. I think it's, it's the right thing that gives me a bit of balance. but. Um, But I'm also quite flexible in that I do a job I love. I love going to work. It feels like I'm extremely lucky that I, you know, I have kids who are super fun and a job I love. So I don't mind if the two sort of take time from each other now and again, because they're both important to me. So if I've got a nativity, I'll take a morning off. If it's a really hectic time at work, I'll work really late. That's fine. But I think, and I think the pandemic again kind of helps with this. I just see the to as parts of my life that I will do when I need to. Um, And while I'm rigid about wanting to put my kids to bed in the evening, beyond that, I'll be pretty flexible and work when I need to and and do things with my kids and my family when I need to. And I think the more that's true, I think if you have a job you resent or don't enjoy, it's really hard to find that balance because it really feels like, oh, I've got to get through this so that I can do this. I've done a huge variety of jobs. I've picked them because I love them. Because if you're going to spend a huge proportion of your life at work, why would you do something something you hate? It's not to say there aren't points in your life when it's when it's necessary to earn a certain amount of money to do a certain thing. But on balance, I think if you can try and find joy in the job you do, you find those boundaries and that that balance between home and work much easier. And how did you find what you enjoy? Because you studied natural sciences at university. So not a sort of natural um, route into the, the world of finance, particularly. Um, how did you find what you were passionate about? And how has that evolved over your 20-year career? Was yeah, it's, it's interesting. If you'd asked me, you know, at the age of 16, 17, what I wanted to do, I mean, goodness knows what I would have said, but it wouldn't have been see over financial services organization I don't think I'd have even understood what that job was so I've um I've done all sorts I've done I've been an editor I've been a consultant I've um, worked in development I've worked in um in FMCG I've found uh, the way it's worked for me is I've done something pretty dramatically different every time I've changed jobs so it might be a different sector it might be a different role um so I get a certain amount of joy out of being really far out of my comfort zone Um, But what that means is I get this opportunity to learn about different organisations. And I find that when I post-rationalise it, I think I've chosen people and organisations and the fundamentals of those organisations more than I've chosen 
whether it's a particular industry or a particular job title. So I know I love organisations that have a mission as well as a profit motive. I know I like organisations where the management style is humble and collaborative. Um, I know I like growth stage organisations because I like to look back on a year and think this looks meaningfully different at the end of the year from how it started. And that's where I get my energy. So now when I'm looking for jobs, I'm looking at people, I'm looking at potential, I'm looking at how able I would be to make impactful decisions. I'm looking for mission more than anything else. But I've only learned that by getting it right sometimes, getting it wrong other times and course correcting. And frankly, not being afraid to change jobs for something that I find terrifying um, if I think it looks fun and exciting and like it's going to challenge me or teach me something. One of the roles that you have at the moment as well is chair of Octopus Money Coach. And we were talking about managing finances earlier. And like you say, a lot of British people, probably people more generally as well, can sort of just want to put money aside, not to take an active uh, role in kind of thinking about it and almost kind of subcontract it out to someone else effectively. Um, Money Coach is... A new thing that Octopus, it was founded by someone else that has become the Octopus brand. Can you tell us a bit about the story and what it what it does? Yeah, it's a wonderful organisation. So it, it joined the Octopus group about a year ago. Um, and what Money Coach does is it provides coaching to people to help them come up with a money plan. So at the moment, we deliver it mainly through employers. So your, um, your organisation might say, right, we're going to provide you access to Money Coach. You will have a couple of sessions with a financial coach who will talk to you about your plans, your goals, your expenses, your um, your opportunities and help you come up with a simple money plan. How much should I be saving? Should I be investing? What is investing? What's a pension? How do I think about these ISAs? Um, and get you to the stage where by the end of the sessions you say, I kind of know what I'm doing now. Um, and I think the really interesting thing about money coaches, I kind of almost think of it as having two enemies that it's trying to fight. The first is trying to make sure you've got as many pounds in your pocket as possible. Um, But the second actually, I think is way more powerful, which is you don't wake up in the middle of the night and worry about money because you feel like you know where you are and you've got a plan. So we rolled it out in in Octopus uh, last year. And when you look back at the stats across the whole organisation, There's one really remarkable one, which is 75% of people felt they hadn't been able to concentrate on their job at some point because they were worried about money. Now, as an employer, that is astonishing. 75% of people are trying to do their job, but are so worried about money that they feel they're not able to focus. Now, that might have been at a point in time, it might have been over a long period, but we found there's such a high correlation between money worries and stress that you know, for some people, it's a very real, I'm in debt or I don't have enough money to get through the month. And that's a big problem to solve. For others, it's about not understanding. You hear quotes like, money makes me feel stupid. I feel like I'm always losing. I feel like I'm always making the wrong decision. That's actually about getting a plan mm. and feeling as if you, Being um, in control. that you're in control. And so that's what Money Coach does. Um, and it's a, uh, it's a phenomenal organisation and it's very specifically aimed at everyone who wants help. So it doesn't matter if you want to invest. It doesn't matter if you have uh, lots of money or not much money at all. It's for anyone who feels they want to get to a plan. And on that, 
sort of coaching, education and so on, you you can tell from your kind of LinkedIn CV, you've clearly got a passion for education um, and have done lots in this country, but also West Africa as well. It strikes me that one of the great benefits of the pandemic may well be that we see a revolution to our education systems that we have not seen in the best part of a century. What do you think are the opportunities for education in the UK and beyond for how we can improve it? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I I do have a huge passion for how education can prepare people for working life, but also act as a leveller um, for people to take advantage of of all of the opportunities that working life can afford them. So um, I'm quite passionate about people developing skills during the course of their education that are going to be useful in the world of work. You know, I'd be um, lying if I said some of the, you know, some of the academic things I might have learned when I was at school are that useful. You know, do I use much of my animal behaviour in my current job? Not really. Um, and I think what I didn't learn enough of at school were the skills that are critical in my job now, how to work in teams, how to interpret data, how to make quick decisions, how to grow things, how to look at things from different angles, how to understand others' perspectives. Um, if I look at my kids' education, I think it's, I think schools have come a huge distance in the last you know, 25 years to providing a more rounded um, set of skills. But I think there's still a huge distance people can go and that education can go in preparing people for the modern world of work. I mean, when we think about the jobs of the future, we talk an awful lot about um, everyone should be a software engineer and learn how to code. Sure, there's going to be, you know, thousands upon thousands of jobs in that. But what about jobs that computers can't do? What about sitting down with someone and helping them develop a plan for their money? What about leading an organisation? That's not about coding. That's about understanding people. And I don't know whether I think there is enough focus in our current education system on how do you understand people? How do you get the most out of people? How do you, um, how do, you do those things that computers can't? And it's the thing I focus on with my kids at home. You know, we talk more about behaviour and respect and how you show up than I test them on spelling or teach them maths um, because I think that's actually what makes you successful in your career. Yes. Um, if you can work well with people, you've got a huge head start. And so sort of into our kind of uh, more personal-ish quickfires, not, not so many quickfires in this one, but if you were 22 in 2022, what sectors do you think you'd be looking at? Oh, good question. I... I would be looking at sectors where the organisation is trying to deliver more than profit. So I've worked in development. I worked in West Africa. Um, I've worked in the public sector. I've worked in the private sector. Where I get really excited is where companies have a commercial profit motive and a mission that sits alongside it. I think that's where you can make the most social change. So I'd probably be trying to dig out those sort of almost modern social enterprises um, and do whatever I could to get involved. It is interesting, though, there has been a bit of pushback over the last few weeks, you know, on some of these kind of corporate slogans, you know, Unilever particularly have sort of had, you know, sort they've of... They've had the, a tough time. They've had a tough time with, with some of it. And it's that profit with a purpose is that there is the need to remember that it comes in, in, in that order. Totally. And, and I think, and I don't think that's a bad thing. 
Um, I mean, when I worked out in, I worked in Sierra Leone for a year and I was working in the Ministry of Trade trying to attract foreign investment into the country. And, you know, for anyone who's worked in government or politics or development, it's really, it's slow going. You know, you're trying to change a, a big old machine um, that's quite slow moving. Actually, most of the people I spent time with um, day to day wanted a job that they could use to feed their family and pay for their kids to go to school. So, and that to me is a social purpose, going to West Africa and creating a job that allows people to feed their family is a social purpose, yet that company can be as commercial as it, as it likes, so long as it's treating its employees fairly, um, because a company has to be commercially successful, otherwise it's not going to exist for very long and people aren't going to have jobs for very long. So I don't think, you know, I don't think profit is a dirty word. I think profit is needed to make companies um, successful for the long term. But if that goes alongside a culture where you're treating people fairly, where you're sharing the rewards, then I think that's that's a really positive thing. And is there a book that's particularly kind of inspired you on the way or recently that you would recommend to people? Oh, that's a good question. I I probably shouldn't admit this. I'm not a huge reader of business books. Um, and almost my answer is look to the people around you rather than to books. So I really like to absorb information from people wherever I meet them. That might be someone I'm randomly sitting next to at dinner or in the pub, or it might be someone who I'm sitting next to in the office. I actually much prefer to hear their stories and try and interpret them, learn from them than I do to read books. I just find it a lot more inspiring. Well, you're not the only one to say that. So much so that we do need to slightly update the question. <laughs> ben Francis and Noel Mack from Gymshark called me out on this at the start of the third series, just saying they don't really read. But it's interesting because, you know, it, Ben talks about, you know, probably one of the country's most successful entrepreneurs, talks about how he'd go to YouTube, LinkedIn and Reddit, which is just a fascinating answer. And what sources of information do you use to kind of stay on top of developments in the, the modern economy? Because there is so much out there, which in a way is great, but at the same time, if you're young, starting out, trying to work it all out, it's, it's hard to know where to begin. Yeah, it's really hard to know where to begin. So I tend to start with news sites, but I will always read, uh, again, it's sort of an insight into how someone's mind works. I read the news, then I read the editorials, and then I read the comments. Because actually comments, I think, are a really interesting insight, not into um, just what the news is telling you, but actually how public opinion is is playing out against that particular piece of news. Mm. And that to me is just as fascinating as the article or the editorial itself. So I tend to do that. I um, I always read, yeah, I always read the news on on the way to work. I think it's, I feel like I want to show up every morning knowing knowing what's going on. Um, I listen to podcasts, not regularly. When I run, I occasionally listen to podcasts. I then find I'm not going quickly enough. So I listen to music instead. Um, but genuinely I absorb. I find Desert Island Discs quite good for that. It's a good combination of talk and. You know what? That is quite true. I do love Desert Island Discs. I enjoy people's stories. Desert Island Discs is a great example because I get much more inspired by people's stories, whether that's flicking through them on LinkedIn, whether that's people I know, whether that's Desert Island Discs, whether it's, you know, a book review in the paper that I actually find as interesting as um, the news article, because it's focusing in on primarily someone's story. And that's just, that's what I find most inspiring. 
And as a final question, you started by saying your career was encouraged by cocktail making classes and so on. If we were having a drink at Ruth Hancock's house, what would be on the uh, on the oh, cocktail menu? Probably an amaretto sour is my favourite. A sour, if you're not a cocktail maker, a sour is a great drink to master because you can chuck any old spirit in there. But as long as you have the right amount of um, citrus and sugar and spirit, always comes out well. So go for a sour. There we are. That's a great top tip to uh, finish on. Ruth, thanks so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thanks for having me.